0: Hello, and welcome to the Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training Podcast. Today, you have the pleasure of listening to an introduction and how to do a peer review. So if this is your first time doing a peer review, this podcast is probably for you. Let's get into it. My name is Chris Nash. I'm an emergency doctor, and I'm an education fellow at Mass General in Boston. I'm here with my co-fellow, Mallory Davis from Michigan.
1: Hi, I'm excited to be here. I am a medical education fellow at University of Michigan and a clinical instructor in the department. This is kind of a daunting topic, I feel like.
0: Yeah, daunting maybe, but I think we can make it fun. Let's get into it. Introduction. You know, the first time that I got a peer review invitation, I remember getting it. It's like a weird email with some like links with some super long URL in it. And it had been forwarded to me and and I chose to do it. But you open it up and you, I honestly felt like I had no idea where to start. And my hope is that we can kind of unpack this for others who find themselves in the same situation and have chosen to listen to you and me talk about it to try and get through it. Um, what, is, what is peer reviewing all about? Like, let's just start there. Why, why do we do this?
1: That's a good question. I do remember getting my first review and thinking I have really gotten myself in over my head. (laughs) Um, But I think that it's always important to kind of keep in the back of your mind that we're doing this for a reason. It's so important to really keep our scientific database strong and relevant. And it helps us have reassurance that the article is trustworthy and reliable. So when you're reading other manuscripts, that you know that it's gone through a rigorous review process. And it really enhances the scientific community as a whole.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah. And I, th- I found personally, uh, one of the side benefits of doing peer review is it exposes me to new things. It lets me see how other people write. It gives me a chance to make my own work that much better. I feel like it even gives me like a bit of a leg up as I'm writing my own manuscripts.
1: Initial considerations when reviewing a manuscript.
0: Okay, well, now we get invited to review a manuscript. You get that email, It's kind of a weird email, looks like it's clearly auto generated. You are thinking about accepting it, but it kind of takes time to do this right before you even click that accept button to say you're going to do this. How, how are you thinking about like, is now even the right time?
1: Yeah, this is, I think one of the most important things when you're starting to review a manuscript is, am I going on vacation for two weeks and maybe I don't have time to do this manuscript review? That'd be a good problem to have. Yeah. That's the best, best case scenario. And you're not bringing your laptop to do extra work, Mm -hmm. but I think making sure that you can return the manuscript for our journals within a two week Mm timeframe, other journals will have different deadlines, but being mindful of how long they want you to take to turn around this manuscript. And if you don't have time, you don't have time. Just be upfront and honest. And it doesn't mean that they won't send you another manuscript in the future, but you really don't want the decision editor having to come to your house and find you to work on this manuscript review. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a little known fact that every journal's got some goons that can track down the people who are at three weeks and haven't returned their review. Okay, let's say that you're going to accept the article, but what is it about conflicts of interest? Like there are times I'm told you're not really supposed to accept a review. What, what does that look like?
1: The way I think about this is like the disclosure slide when you see on a PowerPoint that someone's presenting. Mm-hmm. It should be fairly straightforward, but you want to think about are you involved in the study do you have a vested interest in the study? Should you be declining it for some ethical reason? Is it your friend that wrote the study and you can't be, you, you know, a non-biased viewer? Like exactly. Um, you really want to make sure that you are unbiased in your review and that you're keeping the scientific process as sound as possible. Reviewing a manuscript.
0: Okay. You get the assignment. You accept it. You pop open your Diet Coke or your beverage of choice and you're about to get going. I think how I usually start, and you can let me know how you do it. I usually just read the whole darn thing and I try and make sure I get a good overview and know exactly what I'm going to review before I get into the details. What do you do?
1: I agree. I open my two liter bottle of Diet Coke and (laughs) then I start reading the whole manuscript once over. I try and just kind of be as empathetic as possible you realize, you know, we both have submitted manuscripts before. You've Mm -hmm. put a lot of time into this. You've put a lot of thought into this. And so as the reviewer, you want to try and be, you know, as kind as possible when you're reviewing it and thinking about how you can improve the work. Mm -hmm. And these notes that you think about and take into mind when you're first looking over it will help kind of guide your decision moving forward. Discussion by section.
0: Okay, so you read it through, and now we're going to go section by section. Background. We're, let's start with the background. I feel like that's a place that people talk about, to sort of give context to what they're doing. What have you seen?
1: Yeah, I think that, you know, sometimes we're guilty of skipping over the background section when we're reading a manuscript, <laughs> but this is super important to help provide context for the purpose of the study. Mm-hmm. You want to make sure that they have a thorough literature review And honestly, you might not have a, you know, a really strong background in this area. And one way that you can kind of mitigate that is either, you know, relying on your own knowledge, which if that's lacking, you can do a quick literature review through Google Scholar or PubMed to see if there's any big manuscripts missing, or you can always ask a friend and see, you know, are these the main papers or the main research in this field that, that they've been, that they've submitted, or are they missing certain key works?
0: Yeah, definitely MedEd is a pretty small community, and you can always ask a friend. I certainly know the people who are particularly good at qualitative methods versus, you know, other types of studies. There's definitely people you can ask. The Hypothesis So in the background section, usually you're starting to get into, like, hypothesis territory. Um, What do you think that a good hypothesis looks like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So what you start off with is you're giving that literature review, You're, you're setting the stage with the knowledge and the information in the field, and then you're going into your hypothesis and you're discussing your research question. And you, when you're reviewing this as the person for the journal, you want to think about, does this hypothesis fill a gap in the literature that they just presented? Mm-hmm. They have a focus and justified need for the study. This is really the time for the author to justify their study and their research question and what they're looking into.
0: Yeah, it's very straightforward. What is my question and why is this new? I totally agree with you methods. Okay. So they've established what they're doing, why they're doing it and the context of what they're doing. Well, how do they do it? That's the methods section. And how do you look? I mean, I, I think about methods sometimes just from like a statistics perspective, but there's more to it than that. Like, what are you looking at when you're reviewing this section?
1: That's a good question. Cause this often really, I think scares people. Mm-hmm. Um, Things that you want to be focused on, and this is often the driest section too, but you want to be thinking about are the methods sound? Do they have any potential biases that they need to address? Did they discuss if the participants were removed from the study? If so, why were they removed? Where did they go? Did they use statistical analysis? Were they appropriate to the study? Statistical methods.
0: Okay, so I have done some statistics. I think all of us have, but I definitely do not feel like I'm a statistician. Is that Does it like invalidate me from reviewing big methods papers?
1: I mean, you're invalidated for other reasons, but no, (laughs) not for when you're reviewing manuscripts. I think that's a really common concern that people have and scares them off from the peer review process. You know, we all aren't statisticians and it can be very daunting and overwhelming when you're reviewing a manuscript, but it's always appropriate to say, I would defer this to a statistician or someone with more expertise in the area. It's perfectly okay to do. And if you have background in that statistical method or you feel comfortable looking at it, then by all means, go for it.
0: Yeah, I may not know what a Cronbach's Alpha is, but I'm good at some stuff. I promise. Results. Okay, so we're at the results section. And this, I feel like, is a really important time. This is kind of also done incorrectly frequently. What, what, what kinds of mistakes do people make here and, and how do you help them get better at it?
1: Yeah, I think the biggest flaw in the results section is often that the authors will present the results and then often discuss the significance of the results. Mm-hmm. So they start kind of melding the results in the discussion section. And you really want to make sure that they're keeping track on the objective findings of the study. You don't want them drawing any inferences from the data, and they should just present the results clearly and completely.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's not, it's like too early in the manuscript for the opinions and the interpretations. So what if you get a paper that's got figures and tables and stuff? Sometimes that's actually kind of hard to read through as well. Do you, how do you, do you actually like go through all those as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. This is the time in the results section that if they're calling out these figures and tables that you should be going and looking at them. You also want to make sure is this the appropriate number of tables and figures for the journal submission? For example, an original report will have a certain number of requirements for tables and figures versus a brief report versus an innovation report. So you want to make sure that the submission and author guidelines are you're keeping in mind as you're reviewing some of these things.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a good general Rule of thumb, like you should, if you're reviewing something from a specific category, you gotta get you gotta know what those requirements are. And this is just a plug for taking a look at that as you're reviewing. 100% agree. Discussion. Okay, so now we're in the discussion, which is where we take all the stuff before and we say, well, what does this mean? What do you think makes a good discussion section?
1: This is the time for the authors to shine. You want them to draw conclusions from the data. This is where they can start drawing inferences. You want to see if they're discussing generalizability if it's a quantitative study and next steps. Do they talk about future studies? This is the point where you'll discuss limitations. This may be in a separate section or this could be in this section depending on the type of submission, but you want to make sure that they're thoroughly acknowledging and addressing any limitations.
0: I think um, you just brought up a good point. You're kind of noticing these things. And I want to make sure as we're talking about this, we make this explicit. These are not just things for you to notice as you're making a decision on the paper. These are opportunities for you to record and present to the authors how they might actually incorporate your feedback. So when we're talking about these section by section, the method section might be a time you write down, hey, I noticed these things, but I didn't get a sense of this. Can you clarify that? Or hey, I I like the limitations you listed. I thought of two more. And I might suggest that to an author and say, think about including these. And it's an opportunity for them to take your feedback and make their paper better.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's super important to go line by line and put that under each heading. So when I am reviewing a manuscript, I'll have my summary paragraph and then I'll have methods as a title. And then I'll go line by line and give feedback for that all the way through. The Decision
0: Okay, we've gone through the paper pretty thoroughly at this point. And then <laughs> this thing we've been putting off the decision, there's like three options, right? There's reject, there's revise and reconsider, or there's accept with minor revisions. Rejection. What does a rejection mean? That feels so harsh that someone has put on all this time, they've submitted you this paper. Why would we render that verdict?
1: It does feel awfully harsh, but you know, we do have to we do have to give those decisions sometimes. An outright rejection is typically due to critical flaws in the study that really, if the authors rewrote it, they couldn't fix this flaw. Another example is that there's major confounders that were not addressed. And so they would have to totally redo the study to address those those issues. Yeah. And then finally, our favorite piece is medical education fellows, educational framework.
0: What is that? Like, this is something we talked about as a course of our fellowship, but you and I have both been in med ed for a little bit, even before fellowship. And this is new to me. Like, what what is that?
1: That's a good question. What is conceptual or educational framework? So in educational scholarship, we think of a conceptual framework as what is the basis and kind of what is the grounds for how you're creating your whole study. And for those who are new to educational scholarship, this is really an area where people be will be tripped up. And it can be an unfamiliar concept to some of our listeners. So <laughs> what it is, is it's kind of a model that represents how complex things within education work. So choosing a conceptual framework really allows the reviewer and ultimately the reader to view the scholarly work within a particular mindset. For example, a novel study that examines an innovation in medical simulation might point to Kolb's experiential learning theory as a framework to place the work in context. And you want to see them build off of that conceptual framework. So here's, the, here's the, the theory that I used, and this is why it was important for this study, and this is how I put it into play.
0: Yeah, I think it's hard to look at what someone has done without knowing exactly why they did it and how they were thinking through the delivery of their product or, or the study that they were going for. I think you're right that this is the way that we all make sure we're on the same page when we're talking about an educational concept. So on top of that, and I'm just going to throw in a few other things, other reasons you might reject a paper. You talked about like you can't ask someone to redo a study that like there's not it's just a paper that you wouldn't publish if that's what you're considering. But also, if you've got a paper that's got a super small sample size submitted as an original contribution, in other words, they just didn't follow the right guidelines for the topic that they submitted under. An innovations report is different from an original contribution, for instance, and that might be a reason that you'd send it back to the authors as well.
1: Yeah, I think this is another plug for knowing the author guidelines.
0: 100%.
1: Revise and reconsider.
0: All right. So we've talked about rejections. And I know that that conjures up bad memories of applying to medical schools and residencies. Let's let's, let's just truck on past it. What's a revise and reconsider?
1: I think this is kind of the bulk of a lot of decisions, particularly accepts are kind of hard to come by, but a revise and reconsider is typically a study that doesn't have a critical flaw like we were talking about earlier, and it really fills a knowledge gap, but it's going to need some rewriting or clarification. An example would be a study that is seemingly well done. It has important findings, but the methodology of the study as written in the manuscript is too sparse, or you have too many questions about what kind of went on. Another issue would be say the literature review is too scant, or they don't include some like important seminal works in this area of medical education. And they really need to draw on some of those so that it can be placed into context. And then another example is that the study on the whole is very good, but there are some issues with the statistics. And they might need to kind of go back to the drawing board and rework a few things before it can be considered for an acceptance.
0: Got it. So you think the paper adds to the conversation? but there's some things that you'd fix or make better. It's not a study that's unworkable, but a paper that could be better.
1: Accept with minor revisions. The other category that we have is accept with minor revisions, which in all honesty, rarely happens. It's pretty uncommon to get an accept with minor revisions. But if you have one, gold star. (laughs) Um, But really this is a manuscript that has very few areas for improvement. And this is a good day for everyone involved.
0: Yeah, high fives all around at that point.
1: Finishing your review.
0: Okay, so you've gone through everything and there's those two boxes left. There's the summary paragraph and then there's the comments to the editor. What what do you do in that summary paragraph? Like what are you doing with that space?
1: Yes, so this is the paragraph that is the paragraph of all paragraphs. So this is where you are restating the title. You're giving a brief overview. That's kind of what I like to do. Not everyone does that. And then you're discussing the good, the bad, the ugly of the manuscript and trying to support your decision with in mind of trying to be empathetic and kind to the authors as well. But this is really where you're kind of supporting your decision.
0: Yeah, this is the place you can just say what you think about the paper. This paper was strong and it fills a gap in the literature, but it didn't have a conceptual framework and it also didn't have well-described methods.
1: This is where you want to make sure that the authors can use that feedback to either rework or kind of move forward their manuscript.
0: Okay. And then that second box, that, letter, that comments to the editor box, what is that all about? What, like, Why not just have one big box that's like twice as many characters? What, what's that for?
1: So th- you should rarely be using this box. This really is if you have serious concerns about the manuscript. For example, like plagiarism. This is something that you are like, red flag. Someone needs to be reviewing this. This is a problem. Because all of your comments, you really want the authors to have their hands on, because that is constructive criticism that they can use to make changes in the future. Where to get help?
0: Let's say you're doing this for the first time and you've listened to Mallory and Chris talk about this, but you feel like you need like maybe a little bit more help as you're going through this. What could a person have to help guide them through this process?
1: So I think something that we use and our fearless leader, Dr. Esther Chen also uses, is the academic medicine checklist for reviewers. We all three use this every time we review a manuscript because it's a structured guide to make sure that you're following the same set of criteria for every single paper you review. And if the study is using qualitative methods, then there's also a checklist for reporting qualitative research. We're going to put these documents in the show notes for listeners to review. But finally, one more piece is that AEM ENT in 2021 also published a really wonderful guide to peer review that was written by Dr. Gottlieb, chan and Promise. And this is super helpful. Conclusions.
0: All right, let's close with just a review of some key points. Number one. Make sure you read the journal requirements for the category of manuscript you're reviewing since different types of articles have different expectations. Number two, write an empathetic summary paragraph for review because your words are going to be read by the author. Number three, go line by line and header by header to organize your review, which will make it easier for your comments to be understood. And number four, use a checklist. This might be the way you make sure you don't forget about that educational framework that Mallory and I discussed earlier. Don't be afraid to ask for help either. Mallie, thanks for joining me. Um, This has been fantastic. Thanks for your expertise, your insight, and hopefully it'll be helpful.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to this AEM education and training podcast. Today's music is by Scott Holmes with sound effects from FreeSound, AI generated voiceovers from Eleven Labs. I'm Dr. Christopher Nash. Catch you in the next one.